I think Jamie hates me. Not only did he give me the graveyard shift before lunch, but he wanted me to do the whole of malignant haematology in half an hour, which is a little impossible, so I went for just myeloma. Um, three reasons, really. Myeloma often presents to the medical take before it's diagnosed. They come in with the symptoms of myeloma. Myeloma presents to the medical take in the middle of its disease course. Also, the treatment and the outcome for patients with myeloma has radically altered in the last five years. And so the prevalence of myeloma in the community, the number of patients actively with myeloma around, is shooting up. When I first started seven years ago, I pulled all the myeloma patients out of our general clinic and put them in a clinic on their own, and we used to have about six on a Monday afternoon. Now our myeloma clinic on Monday afternoon has 35 patients in it, and it's me, Tim, and a registrar doing it, whereas it used to be me for half, and half the afternoon. So there's a lot more myeloma about. So what I'll cover quickly is the types of plasma cell uh, disorder, where myeloma fits into all the different malignant plasma cell disorders, how it might present both pointers at diagnosis and also problems when it presents in the middle of the, the treatment course, a little quick update on the serum-free light chain assay, which is, is new, a newer tool that we have to monitor myeloma. And then uh, hopefully a quick bit on the modern management and the novel drugs that we have now in myeloma, as well as the novel clotting agents. It's all got a bit novel in haematology. So uh, myeloma is a cancer of plasma cells, which are uh, cells that live in the bone marrow. We usually have one or two percent plasma cells in our bone marrow responsible for they're sort of terminal differentiated B cells are responsible for producing antibody. And there is a spectrum of disorders associated with malignant plasma cells or an expan malignant expansion, a clone of plasma cells. The one we're going to go on about is obviously plasma cell myeloma, which is by definition, you know, multiple myeloma. It's a multifocal disease, a cancer with widespread bone marrow involvement. You can, however, also have a solitary single lump of myeloma, known as a solitary plasmacytoma of bone or even actually an extramedullary plasmacytoma, and they're quite uh, they're actually the one bit of myeloma that may be curable with radiotherapy, an extramedullary plasmacytoma. You can also have plasma cell leukemia, and that is where you have more than 2 times 10 to the 9 plasma cells in the blood, or more than 20% of the differential is, is plasma cells. And about 2 or two to 5% of myelomas present with plasma cell leukemia, and that's a very aggressive, nasty disease. And lastly, and very quickly, AL amyloidosis, which is, as you all know, deposition of clonal light chains produced by a malignant plasma cell clone, may or may not actually be myeloma, which causes organ dysfunction because of the interruption of the structure of organs. So quick run through the demographics of myeloma. The incidence is said to be 60 to 70 per million. As Wayne said, we have a, um, a catchment here of just under 500,000. And in Derriford, pretty regularly, we get 45 new myelomas a year. The median age is about 70, but 15% of all myeloma presents in the under 60s, higher in black Afro-Caribbean ancestry. As I said, the rapid rising prevalence are approximately 10,000 to 15,000 patients with myeloma in the UK. More common in men, usually presents de novo with active disease, but may present with a preceding asymptomatic phase. <coughs> Approximately 1% of all cancers and 15% of haematology cancers. And myeloma is part of a diagnostic spectrum, really, dependent on the bulk of the disease. So I'm sure you've all heard of MGUS, the term MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance. 
that's very common, about 5 to 10% of those over the age of 80 will have a small paraprotein if you look for it, so 2 to 3% of those over 70, so it's extremely common to have a low-level paraprotein in your blood. To qualify to have MGUS, you have a paraprotein of less than 30 grams. If we were to look in the bone marrow, there would be less than 10% plasma cells, and there's no damage. If you get a bit more disease bulk, then you get what we call smouldering myeloma, or asymptomatic myeloma. A higher paraprotein, by definition more plasma cells in the bone marrow, but still no damage. To actually get your diagnosis of myeloma, you need a paraprotein, some clonal plasma cells, and the, uh, uh, the critical bit is that you have what we call ROTI, myeloma-related organ or tissue impairment, so there's damage. So you have to have damage to qualify as myeloma. So as if that's what they look like under the microscope, jolly pretty, purple cells. There's a collapsed vertebra, wedge fracture of an osteoporotic vertebra, a pepper pot skull, and some lytic lesions in Simmons femur. Typical appearances. Each malignant clone of plasma cells produces, a para produces an antibody. And if you have a clone of plasma cells, they all produce the same antibody. So uh, each patient with myeloma has a unique paraprotein or, or a large lump of antibody, I guess it's the same. The majority of people present with an intact immunoglobulin antibody consisting of a heavy chain and a light chain. So we talk about people with an IgG lambda myeloma or an IgA kappa myeloma. It's usually IgG or IgA, rarely can be IgD. And there is the mythical beast of the IgM myeloma, which I've never seen in my entire career. It is supposed to exist. But as far as in all intents and purposes, an IgM paraprotein is always associated with a clonal lymphocyte disorder, a lymphoma, not a myeloma. 15% of people with myeloma, their plasma cells are so rubbish, their clonal cells, they can only produce light chains. They can't assemble an intact paraprotein. So they just produce either kappa or lambda light chains. And the light chains are much smaller than an intact immunoglobulin molecule. So they're filtered by the kidneys. And we find it in the urine, and that's what we call Bentz-Jones protein. And if you've got light chains being filtered by the kidneys, you're much more likely to get damage to your kidneys. You can see light chains on a conventional serum electrophoresis if there's a massive amount, but usually you only see them in the urine. And then this beast here, approximately 1% of myeloma, is non-secretory, and we'll go over that. So that means that you have all the features of myeloma, but they just don't, they don't make a paraprotein because they're that nasty and malignant, they don't work. So what do we classify as ROTI? So we use the abbreviation CRAB, so it's hypercalcemia, renal impairment, which may be due to light chain deposition or infection, hypercalcemia, hyperuricemia or NSAIDs. It's kind of getting the picture, it's the devil's drug in haematology, so the NSAIDs. Anemia, so below 20 grams below the normal range or less than 100 grams per litre, and a bone lesion, <coughs> so lytic lesion, pathological fracture or a vertebral compression fraction. And then also two infections in a 12 month calendar year, amyloidosis or hyperviscosity symptoms. So how does myeloma present? Majority of paraproteins are picked up as incidental findings in asymptomatic people, hence MGUS or smouldering myeloma. In primary care, majority of patients will present with back pain or tiredness, anemia. Secondary care, they usually present to the renal physicians or the orthopaedic surgeons. And then rarely people present with overwhelming infection, with hypercalcemia, subvinyl cord compression, just generally off their legs, or very rarely present with hyperviscosity. 
but these are the, the presentations that, that acute care people will see. So, who should we work up diagnostically? The British Society of Haematology guidelines say that anybody who has a raised plasma viscosity or ESR, who has a raised globulin level, has unexplained hypercalcemia, renal impairment or anemia, or any of the pathological bone lesions, should have a myeloma screen. Which is why we pick up an awful lot of MGUS. I'm afraid. Uh, uh, so how do you do a diagnostic workup for myeloma? You need to send me some blood, send the lab some blood and some urine. So the blood gets sent for serum in a yellow top tube for protein electrophoresis and then if there was a, a monoclonal protein detected, we do what's called immunofixation, which tells us whether it's an IgG lambda or a kappa or what type of paraprotein it is. We then quantitate the amount of paraprotein and also quantitate the uninvolved immunoglobulins to see whether there's any immune paresis. So anybody with appreciable myeloma, once they, most of their plasma cells are malignant and are involved in making the paraprotein, the normal plasma cells die off and you don't make any normal antibody. So most patients with myeloma are extremely immune paresis, they don't have normal antibody levels and that's why they're so at risk of infection, they can't mount an antibody response to bacteria. You need to send urine as well, because as I said, if you just send the serum, you're going to miss 15% of myeloma that is uh, light chain only. Again, we do electrophoresis and IFIX on the urine, looking for Vence-Jones proteins. And then a skeletal survey as well, looking for the bone lesions. And one thing to emphasise is that this is a cancer workup, so a skeletal survey fits under the two-week wait investigation and I great delight sticking my little red stickers on the request for a skeletal survey because it's helping me diagnose a cancer. So this is what a serum electrophoresis looks like in the lab. So numbers two, these are different patients with the serum there being run down the gel. Patients two, three, four, six, seven, nine and ten is effectively and reasonably normal electrophoresis. But there's a paraprotein band in numbers one, four and eight. So you then take that sample again, run it again, and use monoclonal anti-sera to say that that paraprotein in that patient's serum is a G-kappa. So some of the diagnostic pitfalls of myeloma are to start with misinterpreting a polyclonal hypergamma globulin anemia. In an audience like this, obviously, it's, uh, no one's going to do that, but we get a lot of requests on two-week wait. GP, please see this patient with myeloma who's got a polyclonal hypergamma globulinemia because they've got an inflammatory or infection. Missing a raised globulin on liver function tests. So that's an early marker, there might be a paraprotein. Uh, and it's really common for us to see a patient with myeloma in the new patient clinic and find that actually, if you look back on the computer, they've had a raised globulin level for five, six years or so as they had their MGUS. Not sending the urine, as I said. Non-secretory myeloma, so there's no band and there's nothing in the urine, but they will be severely immune paresed and have a very low globulin. MGUS is really common. Renal impairment and anemia are all really common. So myeloma is rare. So often people will have an MGUS and a different reason for their anemia and their renal impairment. And lastly, the commonest cause of hypercalcemia in someone with a paraprotein is still hyperparathyroidism, so still you've got to look for a PTH in people. Right, so moving on, the serum-free light chain assay. This has uh, revolutionised our life. We no longer have to do 24-hour urine collections on our patients. We all have a low-level polyclonal kappa and lambda light chain in our serum. 
small amounts and we have a kappa-like kappa-lambda ratio. If you have a raised level of one of these, either the kappa or the lambda, and it throws the ratio out, then that tells us we have a monoclonal plasma cell disorder. If you have raised levels of both of them and the ratio remains normal, then you've got renal impairment or an inflammation. And not all, but most myeloma patients have an abnormal light chain ratio, even if their main paraprotein is an IgG lambda. And this is a really useful way of screening patients who have only light chain myeloma or have amyloid or very low level secreting myeloma. And in fact, since the free light chain assay came along, the number of truly non-secretory myelomas is really rare because this is a very sensitive assay. So as I said, no more myeloma patients walking around with two gallon jars of urine coming to clinic anymore, which is great. Prognosis, so this is a bit of a change in the last few years. We used to, you might remember hearing about the salmon and jury staging system. We've replaced that with the ISS, much better system, based on your beta-2M and your albumin level at diagnosis. Stage 1 disease with a beta-2M, low beta-2M and a normal albumin, depending on your age at presentation and how you're treated, so that's with high-dose therapy with a transplant getting on for a 10-year overall survival rate now in younger patients treated intensively with stage 1 disease. Stage 3 disease with a high beta-2M still don't do particularly well. We are also uh, able now to look at the carrier type of myeloma cells. Carrier type analysis with sort of G-banding <coughs> or was really confined to leukemias where the cells are rapidly growing and could easily be caught in metaphase and you could do G-banding to see whether there are any chromosome abnormalities. With the advent of fluorescence in situ hybridization, we've now got uh, the ability to look at cells in interphase. They don't need to be in metaphase, and we can look for abnormalities. So these are the common ones you see in myeloma, and here you've got a green marker on chromosome 11 and a red marker on chromosome 14, and a green and a red one superimposed with a bit of yellow, if you can just about see, because there's an 11-14 translocation. Quite a favourable marker, but these ones particularly are very poor prognosis. The majority of patients will have a carrier type abnormality on fish. The other thing the free light chain ratio has done is, is revolutionise the um, way we tell people or counsel people with MGUS. We used to say that people with MGUS had a 1% chance of progression up the spectrum to myeloma per year, per, and now we can be cleverer than that. If you have a normal free light chain ratio and a paraprotein of less than 15 in our money and it's IgG, then you have a 2% chance of progressing to active myeloma in 20 years. So effectively, if you're 75, 80, with those low-risk MGUS, you don't ever need to come near us ever again, straight back to primary care, probably not even monitored in primary care. If you have an abnormal light chain ratio and an IgA of 20 as your MGUS and you're 35, then you've got a nearly 30% chance of progression in 20 years, and I'll keep you in the outpatient team. So going on with the modern management, we still only ever treat symptomatic disease. Don't treat MGUS, don't treat smouldering myeloma. We might watch smouldering myeloma a bit closely because they're going to probably need treatment in the future, but only, again, if they're symptomatic. Supportive care at diagnosis remains integral and crucial, particularly if patients present with renal impairment, because you can salvage someone's kidneys with acting promptly in the first three or four days that they present with renal impairment due to myeloma. We've got some new novel agents, thalidomide you'll all have heard of, I'm sure. It's got a checkered past. Son of thalidomide, lenalidomide, and also bortezomib or velcade as its trade name. 
revolutionised the treatment of myeloma, and that's highly responsible for the rapid increase in the prevalence and the, the fact that people can now expect to live between 8 and 10 years with their good prognostic myeloma. We still transplant patients regularly, and there are many new agents on the horizon. So, supportive care at diagnosis, I'll make that point again, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we don't like that drug. Fluids are really important, particularly if somebody presents renal impairment thought to be due to hypercalcemia and their myeloma. Aggressive management right up front of the hypercalcemia with bisphosphonates. Treat any infection. Dexamethasone is the sort of first aid for myeloma. And if you have a high clinical suspicion that someone comes in on a medical take with myeloma and you've sent a paraprotein off, it might take, they batch them in the lab, so it can take three or four days before they get round to doing the run, and that can sometimes make the difference in someone's kidneys. So don't wait, but rather you rang us, because we can do a quick bone marrow aspirate, see wall-to-wall plasma cells in two or three hours, and start them on some dexamethasone and salvage them. So if there's, not everybody, <laughs> but if there's a high clinical suspicion, you do a, a next, you know, chest x-ray and there's a thumping lytic lesion in someone's arm and they're anemic with a high globulin and it's not rocket science, bring us net then, don't wait for power protein to come back, particularly if they've got renal impairment. So, as I said, patients with myeloma are being admitted all over the hospital all the time as, as we, this is becoming more of a chronic illness, and they have long periods of remission. If someone's on active chemotherapy or treatment, we would expect them to come directly into us, but people are admit, increasingly admitted on other takes, and that's quite right, because I couldn't manage an MI now if you paid me I'll have a clue. So think, things to think about is is the admission actually related to their therapy? Have they had a blood clot because of the thalidomide? We'll get onto that in a minute. Are they neutropenic? Please don't give them any NSAIDs even if they're complaining of bone pain. Uh, and keep an eye on their fluids. Make us aware, not necessarily because we might be able to do anything about why they've come in, but so we can give you a prognostic opinion. There are two patients recently I've been involved with, one of who is, was a lady who was in her early 70s who just had one course of treatment for myeloma, was in a good remission, going to have three or four years before she runs into trouble, admitted on the cardiology take with crashing heart failure from an MI, and they nearly didn't resuscitate her because it said myeloma in the notes. And the flip side of that was a different patient who came in, I think, via A&E with crashing sepsis, who's an end-stage myeloma patient, two or three months left to live, who went through A&E, MAU, and into ITU, and when I found him, because he didn't come to clinic, <laughs> was ventilated non-inotropes, and the ITU was amazing, and they saved his life, and he got gangrene of both feet from the inotropes, so he's got three or four months left with gangrene. So, and at the really big extremes, but even if, you know, a quick prognosis tells you whether this is a patient who's got five or six years left in their myeloma journey, or actually hasn't. And also, we know the patients really well, so we can get very involved in the conversations with them and their family about how active they want their heart attack to be treated. And also, orthopaedic admissions, the disease might, might actually be because of disease progression, so we like to be able to get in with some dexamethasone. So, current therapeutic strategies are broad. We still use lots of chemotherapy, alkylator, the old alkylator drugs. Dexamethasone particularly mainstay, both at diagnosis as first aid and in palliative care. The imids, thalidomide and lenalidomide, are new drugs called proteasome inhibitors, so that's Velcade, the transplants, usually autologous transplants, occasionally allogeneic. Radiotherapy, we give a lot of that as spot welding, particularly for pain relief of lytic lesions, treating the spinal cord compression. 
bisphosphonates, all our patients are on one or other bisphosphonate, particularly zoledronate now has been shown to increase the overall survival in patients with myeloma. And again, supportive care, really important, BTE prophylaxis, antibiotics, painkillers. So the typical progression for patients with myeloma now is a bit of a smouldering pre-phase, which may or may not get picked up, followed by a sort of relapsing, remitting disease where you patients relapse, get treated, have a plateau, relapse, get treated, have a plateau, and this goes on now for a longer period of time than it used to. So quickly, a bit about the novel therapies until Desmond stops me. Thalidomide, lenalidomide, bortezomib are used in combination with chemotherapy and steroids. We used to use them only in relapse disease, but they're now pretty much standard of care in all lines of treatment. And even there's a, uh, people are looking at maintenance therapy for the IMIDs. Nice guidance pretty much holds our hands as to when we can use these drugs. We, there's a bit of wriggle room, but we don't have a lot. We have to do as we're told. Thalidomide, as you remember, was withdrawn from the market in 1960 because of the awful teratogenetic effects it had. But in the late 90s, began to be used in myeloma, and really from the year 2000 onwards, it's completely revolutionised the treatment of myeloma. Then alidomide then came along. It wasn't actually that it shows how we were using it from about 98, 99 onwards. It took another eight or nine years to get a proper license because of the connotations of it. Lenalidomide, the son of thalidomide, has more recently received a license, but we're getting a few problems with that because there's an increased reports of secondary malignancies in people who've been treated with lenalidomide for a long time, and we're watching that quite closely at the moment. Thalidomide has some awful side effects, as you might expect. Uh, well, some difficult side effects, sorry. So, uh, clots, it's very thrombogenetic. Most patients have clexane prophylaxis. We teach them to give their own clexane. They'll be on it for six months plus. It makes you sleepy. It was designed as a sedative, after all. It makes your bowel sleepy, too. And it's pretty ubiquitous to end up with a degree of peripheral neuropathy, pins and needles, and uh, numbness in your fingers with, with thalidomide. It can occasionally cause Stevens-Johnson syndrome in patients as well. Lenalidomide, the son of thalidomide, is more potent and less toxic, has slightly different uh, side effects, particularly myelosuppression. Its major side effect, however, is financial toxicity. It costs £5,000 for 21 days of treatment, so in our myeloma clinic on a Monday afternoon, Tim and I regularly spend about thirty grand on this drug once a week. Ridiculous. It is free after 26 cycles, which is two years of treatment, and they're not stupid, Celgene, because... I think out of the, what, 30, 40, 50 patients we've put on lenalidomide in the last three or four years, uh, three or four have got to 26 cycles. I've only had one past 30 cycles, so they're not stupid. And as I said, we've got increased secondary cancers being reported. It becomes a bit of a thing for patients to get it free. <laughs> it's this thing they always aim for. I want my lenalidomide free occasionally. Horrible slide, just to show that nobody really knows how it works. Uh, but effectively, it messes with the immune system, particularly <laughs> augments natural killer cells and T-cell function and increases T-cell attack against tumour cells. has an angiogenesis uh, inhibition effect as well, obviously, hence the damage to the limbs in the children. Uh, inhibits osteoclast, arrest cell cycle, usual, usual stuff. Pregnancy prevention program, this is fun, uh, for both thalidomide and lenalidomide, very quickly, we have to consent patients before we put them on it that they will use contraception, and we have to reconsent them every time we write them a prescription once every four weeks that they will use contraception. Uh, 
women of childbearing age have to have a pregnancy test every three to four weeks if they're on thalidomide or lenalidomide. Men, we just have to get them to sign to say they will use a barrier contraception if engaged in sexual intercourse with a lady of childbearing potential. Tick. Every single time we write a clinic prescription. It gets a bit tedious, but it has to be done. Some of them do, some don't, and some wives get a bit upset. It's, 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 it's an art form, isn't it? Consenting for thalidomide. Um, bortezomib is a novel drug. It's a proteasome inhibitor. The proteasome is an intracellular organelle that degrades protein. The only thing, main thing about bortezomib, it has awful peripheral neuropathy as a side effect, painful neuropathy that can be permanent, and we have to watch it very closely. It's also parenteral rather than oral. Oh. Stem cell transplants, we still do those in absolutely pretty much everybody up to the age of 70 gets an autograph if they're fit for it nowadays. May even do it twice if they're fitter and younger. Very occasionally we allograph because that remains the only curative option in myeloma, but it's reserved for the very young and the very fit and the very motivated. So the current UK treatment algorithm, if you're not going in a trial, is said governed by NICE, not us. Uh, First-line treatment is a thalidomide-based regimen called, with cyclophosphamide, thalidomide and dex, followed by a transplant or not. You get your bortezomib second line, according to NICE. You get your lenalidomide third line. And then finally, we then have to go back to more conventional chemotherapy and dexamethasone regimens or experimental agents. But we've got our hands tied by NICE at the moment. There are other up-and-coming <coughs> agents. Son of lenalidomide, pomalidomide. The new bortezomib is carfilzomib. Histone deacetylase inhibitors are coming through. So basically, the bottom line is a really exciting field in haematology, and the, the prognosis and the outcome for patients is, is rapidly improving. And as I said, it's becoming a chronic illness in some patients. So just to labour that point, this slide shows the outcome over the years, and I would think that patients now, so diagnosed at the early part of 2000, are living that long. And I would think the curve for the people diagnosed between 2005 and 10 is probably sitting about there now. Take-home messages, massively increasing incidence because of, well, sorry, slightly increasing incidence because of our ageing population. If you spot it early and you give first aid, you can rescue people from having renal impairment for the rest of their life. Massively increasing prevalence and these patients will increasingly present to other takes. Please let us know even if it's an unrelated problem. I won't labour the point about NSAIDs.